We're coming now to con continue our study of the Gospel of John together. We're in chapter 5. Uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 15, and, and this week, Lord helping us, we will uh, cover verses 16 through 30 of the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read, and I will read that section entirely. For this reason, the Jews per persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows, himself, shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all things to the, to the son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, that the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel us at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Uh, in this section, we're going to uh, see unfolding how Christ is dealing with the, the issue that's gone before. In the first 15 verses, remember, he went to the pool of Bethesda. He saw a man who had been uh, ill for 38 years. We're not told his illness, but apparently, whatever it was, he, he could not get up. He could not walk. He could not carry something for 38 years. And there by the pool of Bethesda, our Lord asked him, do you want to be well? And he said, yes, and he healed him. And then he said, take your bed and go ahead and walk out of here. And then we're told, well, by the way, it was the Sabbath. And so when the Jewish leaders saw him carrying his mat, they, they berated him for breaking the Sabbath law. Now, to be clear, he wasn't breaking God's Sabbath law. He was breaking the Pharisaical, the rabbinic Sabbath law. They had taken God's simple provision of you shall do no work and had multiplied uh, the, the requirements and the prohibitions of that. 
And so he wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking man's additions to God's law. Remember, and so when they said, so uh, why, why are you carrying that? And he said, the man who healed me told me to carry it. And their first response was, well, you know, who, who is that? Now, they, who told you to do that? And so their emphasis is on Sabbath, not, are you kidding me? You've been sick for 38 years and someone healed you? Their issue is, you're breaking our law. Well, that's where we come in, in starting in verse 16 and following. But as we go through, and especially as we reach well, around chapter or verse 19 and following, um, the Lord Jesus Christ will make some stunning statements of himself. Chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, this section we're in right now, is a very powerful display of Jesus Christ declaring who he is. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, but I just want to read to you. Uh, Chuck Swindoll summarizes uh, these six specific points he's going to make. In verses 19 to 20, he says he is equal with God. In verses 21 and 26, he says he is the giver of life. In verses 22 and 23, he is the final judge. In verse 24, he is the one who will determine the eternal destiny of humanity. In verses 25 to 29, he is the one who will raise the dead. In verse 30, he says he is always doing the will of God. Powerful, powerful statements. I've mentioned before that, you know, you, if you talk to people, if you talk to uh, people who are part of a cult that denies the deity of Christ or maybe a liberal, there are those who are just a Bible critic, and they will often say, well, well, Jesus never said, I am God. Now, if you read through the gospel accounts, the biblical accounts, you will not find that sentence in Jesus' mouth, I am God. But Jesus made clear he is God. And this is one of the passages that makes that stunningly clear. And we'll see that in the fact that even in the Jewish response, they know exactly what he's saying. He is declaring himself to be God. So watch for that as we, can, as we go forward. In verses 16 to 18, we're going to see this. The issue starts with this Sabbath controversy. And just to remind us, uh, in the law of Moses, on the, four, the fourth commandment, you shall... Uh, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the way to do that is to, to do no work. But that is, that's not laid out deeply. Um, again, the Jews multiplied that and said, well, there are 39 categories of work and many subcategories of those. That's what the rabbis added to the law. It was meant to be a time of, you know, stop your labors and, and serve the Lord in your heart and, and worship but they took it beyond that. And so we see in verses 16 um, and following, uh, verse 16, we read, uh, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Because of what Jesus said, go ahead and carry your mat, but more than that, what Jesus did. Not only did he tell someone to lift up a mat again that wouldn't break the commandments now if you were you know lift you know, if you what the main thing was stop your business uh, so if, if he were carrying a mat so he could go and sell it that's a different matter
But if you're just moving your, your mat and taking it home, that's not breaking the law. Well, more than that, not only did Jesus give that instruction, he healed someone. And that fits into the category of work. You might think, well, by whose power did he heal? If by God's power as God he healed, then can he really be breaking God's law? But they're upset. You healed. And by the way, the fact that they're worried about the traditions tells me that's the Pharisees. Uh, and, and so anyway, they're upset with him. And, and, but notice, they persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Um, in the, if you go through the Gospels and, and put the events in chronological order, this is the first time that they decide they're going to kill Jesus. And, and he's maybe a year and a half into his ministry. Assuming this is maybe the second Passover, they, they, this, this settles it for him. He is breaking their traditions, so they're going to kill him. Well, verse 17, Jesus answered and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. He begin, immediately says to, you don't understand the Sabbath. Now, in, in, in Genesis, we're told that after God um, created all things on the seventh day, he rested. But that doesn't mean, when we think of rest, uh, too often when we're th- taking that Sabbath concept, and, and it was, it's inertia. You don't do anything. And so you could wrestle with, is, is it work? To lift a glass of water to your lips, you know. Uh, it see, he ceased from the labors of creation. Literally, you could say he ceased from his tasks. The word Sabbath doesn't really mean rest. It means to stop your labors. But what Jesus says is God didn't stop his activity. God continues unceasingly to be busy. He's the one that holds all of this together. If God stopped his activity for one day, everything would fall apart. He's the one that holds it together. His providential care continues. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it even rains on, a, on Saturday or Sunday? God is sovereign, and, and yet he is the one who governs the rain. You think of his sovereignty. Are, are children ever born on the Sabbath? Yeah, it happens. Uh, are people ever um, uh, seeing God's mercies in all kinds of ways? God's providential care is unceasing. And so you see what Jesus is saying? My father has been working in Tanau, and I have been working. Yes, he ceased from the labors of creation and set aside and made the day holy. But he doesn't say cease all activity. God can still do acts of kindness, goodness, and mercy, even in the time in which he is making the Sabbath day holy. And then, But notice a couple other things real quickly to see in there. He says, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. He calls God my father. Um, usually, they spoke of God in, in sometimes uh, roundabout ways. They, they, they want to be careful not to use his name. But sometimes, like, uh, for example, when we had our Passover Seder, the prayer that uh, was often given, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, 
Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God. They called him our God. Occasionally, you'll, you'll see references to our Father. But they didn't call him my Father. We can, you know, he is our Father, and we can say he's my Father, but not in the same way he is Father to Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And so he, he right away, he's making a powerful statement. He is my Father. He's working and I'm working. So in other words, I'm, I'm doing what my Father is doing. I honor the Sabbath we created. And I'm honoring it in the way we designed. I'm doing what my Father does. And so right here, he's showing us an important principle. The Bible, you know, has all kinds of, we've talked about this, has, has, has different law codes. And those law codes change in different situations. We call them dispensations. Uh, if you read carefully through your Bible, you'll notice that they don't start eating meat until uh, after, no, and after the flood. After the flood, they can start eating meat. So before the flood, it was a very sad time. I don't think there was much joy or happiness for, for however long that was. So, but there was a change of rules. Under the Mosaic law, uh, that's the covenant God made with the nation of Israel to govern them in the land. That was their, their constitution. And there were all kinds of requirements. And one of the examples I often give is, for example, to sh- they, were to, they were to be a spectacle of God's holiness. And so that, w- that even affected the, the fabric they wore. They could not wear a mixed fabric out, uh, garment because that would suggest, uh, that would be uh, not, not reflecting separation and holiness. Well, that, those laws don't apply today. We're not under that covenant. But here's the point God's moral law is unchanging. So there are these regulations that govern different times and situations. Uh, for example, you know, in your home, you might have the time, there are certain times when the noise level has to come down. It was sleeping time. The baby has fallen asleep. It is now a capital offense to make noise. <laughs> Where we're, you know, otherwise, laughter and all that's fine. Well, wait a minute. Oh, someone's sick. Quiet. You know, the rules change for the different circumstances. But God's moral law is unchanging because it reflects God's moral character. That's, why is it wrong to lie? Is that just a rule? That's a, that is a statement of God's character. God doesn't lie. And so it, that's why it's moral uh, to not lie because that's, we're reflecting and honoring God's character. So God's moral law is unchanging. And that's so what Jesus is saying here is, my, I do what my father does. Because I share my father's nature, and we always do what is right. The tragedy is you and I are not God. We have a fallen nature, and we act according to our nature. Uh, we, we behave in certain ways because of our nature. You know, you can do all kinds of interesting co- contrasts and comparisons between you know, dogs and cats. Um, you call a dog, he'll come because he loves you. You call a cat, if they're hungry, you'll come. We had a cat growing up, 
And the only way we could get it home is we, we always fed it with canned food. And so we would just go to the window and, and turn on the can opener. And as an expression of love and kindness, the cat would come running to the house. Uh, so so, so they, we act according to our nature. And that's what Jesus is saying. My father is my father. I am his son. I share his nature. And we are always working. We do what's right. And we are always busy, though we can honor truly the Sabbath. Well, in verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. There it is. When he said, God is my father, he was saying, I am God. I, I mentioned on Wednesday night, we had a, at our home one time to visit from some Jehovah's Witnesses, and we were going round and round on the, the, the central issues. Who is Jesus? And the Jehovah's Witnesses denied that Jesus is God. And, and finally, I just said to the one lady that was there, and I said, you know, she obviously was uh, mature enough to have had children. And so I said, do you have any children? And she said, well, yes, I do. I said, great. Uh, it's a blessing. I said, um, your children, do they share your nature? If you're a human, are they human also? She said, well, of course. So if Jesus is the son of God, that means he shares his nature. At that point, she was horrified and just quickly left. But that, the Jews got it. So, so people say, Jesus didn't express the word. Jesus saying, I am God. At least we don't have a record in the Gospels. But Jesus was telling them right here, he is my father. Therefore, I'm God. And they got that. That's why they wanted to kill him. They said, you're making yourself equal with God. To which in the Greek, Jesus responds, bingo. No, <laughs> they're, they're getting it. They're getting the point. He's saying, I do what I do because like my, I share my father's nature. We are God. You know, and we wrestle with how do we fully express that. But the Bible says there is one God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I, I and my father are one. Well, now we, he'll, he'll develop that in verses 19 to 23. speaks of his relationship to the father. The Lord Jesus Christ in mercy is laying it out for them very clearly who he is. So in verses 19 and 20, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, now some of your translations might even have it there, literally that's amen, amen. Um, that, the rabbis didn't talk like that. Amen means it's certain. In other words, when, or, or that's a true fact or something. So when we pray and someone, you say amen, you're saying, that's right. I agree with you. So what he's saying is, this is right, this is right. The rabbis didn't do that. The rabbis would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so this, and the majority agrees with Rabbi so-and-so. Jesus just said to them, this is truth, this is truth. The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus is saying, I am just doing what I've watched my father do. I do what my father shows me. Uh, Dan Duncan compared that to 
you know, back in Jesus' day, Jesus learned carpentry. And, and he learned it the old-fashioned way. He learned it by being an apprentice to his father. Uh, if I can bring it somewhat forward, if you enjoy cello music, uh, one of the more adequate cellists is Yo-Yo Ma. Well, imagine you're a student, uh, that a student of Yo-Yo Ma who studied under him for a decade it, it now comes and is playing in a symphony and he starts playing his cello and the, and the conductor says, no, you're playing your cello wrong. And the students say, I'm just doing what Yo-Yo Ma showed me to do. Now, how do you argue with that? <laughs> uh, and you can take it a hundred different ways, you know, whether it be your favorite golfer. Well, I, uh, uh, this is how so-and-so showed me to do this. Uh, and, and so what Jesus is saying, I am just doing what I've watched my father do. And so your problem is not with me, it's with the father. Your problem is with God. And, and here's the struggle. Somebody in the room was wrong. Either the rabbis and their traditions are wrong, or God in the flesh is wrong. I'm voting with God. But you see, that's what he's making the point here. Your, your problem is I, not this school of rabbi or that school of rabbi. The issue is... This school of rabbis versus God. I do what my father shows me and what my father does. And he goes on, verses 21 and 22. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. So here he describes God as the one who who raises the dead and gives life. He has the power of life. You know, we can, through various means, sometimes medication, sometimes electroshock, we can uh, restore uh, life functions. But we cannot give life to what is dead. And Jesus says he can raise the dead. He can give life. He'll demonstrate that before the end of this book. In chapter 11, we'll see with Lazarus. Lazarus will be dead for so long, four days, that they'll say, no, you do not want to open that tomb. And he will, and he will call Lazarus forth. He will give life to what is inarguably dead. That is a divine power. God is the one who gives life. And it says here, the son gives life to whom he will. Now, what's interesting is we walk through this passage, you're going to see the idea of life expressed in different ways. It can be raising the dead like a Lazarus. It can be the the resurrection of the dead. Lazarus was restored to life, but he wasn't resurrected. Resurrection means brought up from the dead and given a glorified eternal body. Lazarus was just restored to life. When we get there in chapter 11, I always feel bad for Lazarus. He had, to, he had to go through death twice. You can almost see him over coffee with his, his sisters and saying, really? <laughs> I got to do this again? <laughs> Could, couldn't we have just left well enough alone? I mean, 
Uh, We'll we'll get there. I don't know what, you know, was he all, I don't know what his awareness was, was, you know, but but anyway, he was not resurrected. His life was restored by the only one who can, Jesus. So there's that aspect of giving life. In this chapter, he'll be talking about the fact he can, the resurrection, the resurrection that's coming, that's Jesus doing that. Remember, Jesus in John 11 says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Not I believe in the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I'm the one who's going to resurrect. But also, there's, so there's the restoring of life. There's the resurrection of life. But also, he talks in this context about spiritual life. Those were, he's going to, he gives life to the spiritually dead. So all three of those are kind of wound up in this passage. But he also says, the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. Not only do I raise the dead, but I am the one who, who judges. I am the ultimate judge. Now the rabbis knew what the Bible says. It's God who is the ultimate judge. Psalm 75, 7. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Isaiah 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. But Jesus says, my father doesn't judge anyone. I do that. You see, he's saying, I am the one who gives life. I am the one who is the ultimate judge. He's speaking to the Jews in language they understood. I am God. I have his nature. I'm his son. I have his activities. I am God. In verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He is claiming to have the right to equal right to honor as the Father does. And that's stunning. We're to honor people. We're to give honor to whom honor is due. You know, we, uh, we honor governmental leaders. Children honor their parents. We honor leaders in various capacities. But the ultimate one we honor is God. So when the apostles are, are told, you know, you're not to preach in Jesus' name any longer, they say, well, who are we supposed to obey? Man or God? And the answer is obvious. God's the ultimate authority and has the ultimate honor. Jesus is claiming he, he is, it's, it's rightfully his to have the same honor as the Father. But what does God say? Isaiah 42.8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God says, I don't share my glory. But Jesus says he shares God's honor and glory. Isaiah 48, 11, God says, for my own sake, my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. And Jesus says, but I share his glory. What's he saying? I am the Lord God of the Old Testament. That's why I have the same honor as Father. Now, if I were to say that to you today, I would hope this place would be empty before the sermon was done. <laughs> or, or, or maybe some of you would just say, well, someone needs to get Drake's, Drake a glass of water and have him sit down. He's, he's out in the sun too long. 
Um, but Jesus is claiming absolute authority with God. And that's why healing on the Sabbath, if God does that, then it's, it obviously must be the right way to do the Sabbath. And he even says that everything belongs to him. Notice he says, the, the one who does not honor the son does not honor the, father, the one who sent him. That is huge. If you do not honor Jesus Christ with the same honor you honor the Father, then you do not honor the Father. Later on in this book, chapter 14, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Here he makes it absolutely clear. If you do not honor Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you don't honor God. Because you know, sometimes we're going to, some people will argue, well, um, they honor God in their own way. You honor, we honor God our way, they honor God their way, we're all, we're, we're all honoring God. And Jesus says, no, no, that's abs- actually wrong. If you do not honor Jesus Christ, then you do not honor God. The only way to honor God is through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus say, would say, no one comes to the Father but by me. So he's, he makes it absolutely clear. There's only one God, and that's Jesus. One God, three persons, but he is the one God. And the only way to honor the Father is through Jesus Christ. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other way to God will do. The only way to approach The living God is through Jesus Christ and to honor him as God the Son. We see then his role in judgment in verses 24 and following. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death into life. And so here he's saying, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now, as a present possession, you have eternal life. And you've passed out of judgment and into life. Most assuredly, I say, he who hears my word believes in him who sent me has eternal, everlasting life. How easy it is to focus on tradition and minor issues. Um, Religion does that all the time. What do you do about this? What do you feel about that? And there's all these different traditions that can divide. And Jesus says, there is one issue, Jesus Christ. Like, like I say, when I've talked to various kinds of religious people, one of the, I, I quickly want to get to the point, what do you say about Jesus? And so, so like Jehovah's Witnesses, well, let's say, oh, he's a, they very, think very highly of him, but they deny that he's God's son. Uh, Muslims will say, oh, we honor Jesus. Uh, he's, he's a great prophet. In fact, um, he's very high in the levels of heaven. Now, Muhammad's higher than he is, but we honor Jesus as a great prophet. That won't wash. 
He said, we must believe in him when share, that he shares in the honor of the Father. The issue is Jesus Christ. Now, there's something else that strikes me. How many of us like conflict? How many of us like controversy? Now, I'll be honest, in human nature, there's a certain delight in conflict and controversy if I'm not involved in it. People love to talk about, get all stirred up in this squabble or that squabble or, or whatever it is. I guess that's what daytime television, if it's still on, uh, that's what people delight in. Conflict, controversy, as long as I'm not messed up in it. But, I, but it strikes me as I'm reading through this, I am so grateful that the Jewish people got after Jesus about what he was doing. Because look what Jesus tells us in the context of that controversy. Conflict often and controversy helps make issues clear. If you look at church history, and we, you know, if you're familiar, there's all kinds of creeds, like the catechism that we're using, all kinds of great church creeds. If you look at history, there have been these incredibly important church councils. Where did they come from? Out of conflict and controversy. Someone comes along and says, you know what? Uh, the church shouldn't believe that Jesus is God. And so they call a council together. And they open their Bibles. And because this person came up with a false teacher denying the truth, it forced them to dig more deeply into the Bible so they could more clearly say, this is what the Bible says about Jesus being God. So we benefit through the conflict and controversy because sometimes it, it forces us to be clearer in, in what, what the Bible teaches. You know, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, some great things come out of there. Like Paul, the passage we, we read uh, when Paul describes the Lord's Supper. Uh, we, we, we got some great teaching where, where Paul says, let me tell you exactly what I received from Jesus Christ I wasn't at the Lord's table, he says. I wasn't at the Last Supper, but Jesus himself told me what happened. We wouldn't have that if Jesus wasn't addressing controversy and conflict about the Lord's Supper in Corinth. You see what I'm saying? So welcome conflict and controversy as an opportunity. Now, here's, that's one thing to talk about church creeds and councils. Great. I'm, I'm all for it. That's also true in our personal relationships, in our family relationships, in churches. Conflict and controversy can be an opportunity for growth, to help us clarify issues and seek biblical resolution. Just like in the, in the, when the church councils met, what did they do? They got into the scriptures and they dug and said, what does the Bible say? You raised some interesting points here. What does the Bible say? And what they said, for example, to Arius, who denied the deity of Christ. They said, you're wrong. Here it is so clearly in Scripture. But that was good because then they became very clear. Everybody agreed then. Here's what the Bible teaches. And Arius is wrong. Well, a conflict in our home, a conflict in a relationship. If our heart is, let's seek the Lord together. Let's open his word and say, what would God have us do in this situation? That's a good thing. And so conflict and controversy can be a fruitful thing if we, if we use that as an opportunity to grow in the Lord, to seek and unite in his will. Well, he continues in verses 25 to 29. Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, 
And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, which all are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to resurrection, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now they believed in resurrection. And they believed in resurrection going in two different ways. You see that in Daniel chapter 12, 1 and 2. And I'll read verse 2. Many of those who, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. What Jesus says, true, and I am the one who makes it happen. I am the one who raises believers to life eternal, the unbelievers to condemnation. Jesus is the one who, who makes that happen. He says in verse 25, I say to you, assuredly, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. What, what do you mean in his hour when he was alive? The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. There he's talking about spiritual life. He, he's, he, he's the one who, who, who speaks life into the unbelieving, to the dead. But he's also the one who raises the dead. And that's when he's talking about when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Yes, spiritual death, but also re- resurrection life. That's where he goes on. Don't, don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming, which all who are in the grave will hear his voice. And so Jesus will be the one who raises the dead. He's the one who brings life to the spiritually dead. He is the one who will raise the dead, some to life and some to judgment. Now, he kind of compresses those, and he doesn't say, you know, bring out the fact that there'll be divisions of time between some of those things. For example, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's called the rapture. He goes on to say, those who are remaining will also be resurrected. That's a, or, or, or raised up. That's the rapture, and that will happen before the seven years of tribulation. After that, as the kingdom is being established in Revelation 20, um, verse 4 and 5, I saw thrones, and they sat on them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. These are speaking about the martyrs of the tribulation period. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's another resurrection right there. So before the tribulation, the church. After the tribulation, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs. But verse 5, but the rest of the dead do not live again until the thousand years were finished. So there are the believing, and, and he goes on and says, this is the first resurrection. So the resurrection to life, raptured, premillennial. The resurrection to death, great white throne judgment. And Jesus is the one who does that. Christ is the one who raises the dead. And he's the one who's the judge, verse 27. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. He is the one who will judge. So who's sitting on the great white throne judging the unbelievers? Jesus is. Remember he says it in John 3, I came 
not to judge. But he's coming later to judge. Then in verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And so he makes it all clear. This isn't kind of, I'm going to go my own way. Rather, I go the way of my Father. My Father and I are on the same page. And he makes it again and again clear. He submits to the Father. So what do we gain out of this passage? First of all, be very clear. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Are you clear on that? Because he's saying, if you don't know who Jesus is, you don't know the Father. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. But also we see he, he shares in the authority and honor and is in complete agreement and complete compliance to the Father. That's why he says, the Father and I are one. One in nature, one in conduct, one in heart. Notice, too, from all of this, what Jesus did teaches us the true meaning of God's will and God's law. So instead of saying, Jesus is wrong because he broke the Sabbath, what we should be saying is, I must misunderstand the Sabbath because Jesus did this. That's an important distinction. We can pick on the Pharisees all day long and say, well, they had their their traditions, and when Jesus didn't fit their traditions, they said Jesus was wrong. They just should have recognized Jesus is right. Always. So, are we clear on that? If, If Jesus... If does it, if God does it, that defines what's good and right and loving. We can sit here, and I hope you agree with that statement. That's what's being revealed before us right here, and that makes good sense. God is good. God is right. God is just. He always does what's good and right and loving. God is love. Now, here's where the problem comes in. How often it has been said, and I've even heard the, express, the comment, why doesn't God love me? What do you mean by that? I'm suffering. If God loves me, why am I in pain? Ladies, you'll have a good chance to explore that Wednesday night when you hear Johnny Erickson taught his testimony about pain and and a relationship to the Lord. Here's the problem. If God is just, why do calamities happen? You know what we're saying is, I'm going to judge. I'm a better judge of justice than God is. How does that make me any different from the Pharisees? I know better than God does. I know better than God does what's loving. I know better than God does what's right and just and good. Rather, we should say, if this is what God is doing, then it's good. It meets his purposes. It's wise. It fits with his love. He defines love, good, and wisdom. Not me. We can learn from the Pharisees. 
Jesus Christ is the definition of good and right. What God does is always good. Now the problem is we don't always understand what God is doing. You might, I might come to you and say, I'd like you to help fix my car. And we open up the hood and you look and, say, and I said, see, that's the engine. I told you I knew about this thing. And you reach in and you yank and I hear this crack and break and you're holding something broken in your hand. And I'm thinking, you've just ruined my car. No, you know that's the first step. You've got to get rid of this thing because that's, that's the problem. Sometimes the noise and sometimes the mess of life and we think God must have made a mistake. No, I'm not as smart as God is. He knows what he's doing. I can trust him. So what, I think what we absolutely need to get out of this passage is the centrality of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely clear. To know Christ is to know God and to have eternal life. To not know Christ is to not know God. You know, have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen the heard the protesters chant, "No justice, no peace." And and so, um, some people have have kind of changed that. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no life. And then you could just change the word N O to K N O W. No Jesus, N O. No life, N O. No Jesus, K-N-O-W, no life, K-N-O-W, or no Jesus, no God. Jesus is the central issue. He, it is not a debate among religious people. This is the issue. Jesus Christ. And so I have to just urge and make sure that you are clear in your heart. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you recognize him as God? Do you recognize him as the Holy One? And you have sinned against him. I have. And do you recognize that your only hope of being right with God is through Jesus Christ? That he died on the cross and offers you salvation and forgiveness if you will trust in him as Savior? There is no other way. Not good deeds, not good works. We'll give thought if it's a really generous gift to the church. No, that's what people seem to apply sometimes if you give enough money. No, not church membership. The issue is Jesus Christ. Are you clear on that in your own heart? And then think too of, of those we love. The issue is Jesus Christ. Again, some people have said over the years, well, Jesus just wasn't clear about who he is. You can't say that if you read John 5 with any understanding. He is God in the flesh. He is the ultimate and final judge. He is the one who gives life. That's God. Do you know him? And if you do, follow him more faithfully. Father,
Thank you for showing us this record of, of our Lord's conversations. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ making so clear who he is and how important it is that we know him to know you. Father, I pray for each one here. Father, I pray for each one who hears these words that you would open hearts in a saving way. Father, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, may we be faithful and clear ourselves in sharing this truth with others. Lord, we pray for one another. We pray for loved ones that are on our hearts that they too may know the one whom to know is life itself, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.